Hello, and welcome to episode 60 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast. The match that started a war. Today, 13th of May, is the 31st anniversary of the event we're going to talk about in this episode. There are perhaps two events that are the events, the single events, that me doing this and you listening to this probably couldn't wait to get to. Svenis Viesta's European Cup in 1991, and firstly, this. The riot at Maximir a year prior, as Dinamo Zagreb and Svenis Viesta fans exploded in violence while millions watched on television. In some corners, this is the match that started a war. In others, it's become known as the Maximian myth. It's been given those titles before, whether you agree with them or not. On the commentary of the event itself, commentator Boris Mutic simply asked, what circle of hell have we arrived at? Whatever your view on the eventual significance of this event on the end of the Yugoslav state, it is perhaps the most famous of all footballing riots. A riot that saw violence <laughs> in the stands, that saw violence on the pitch, and that saw, swiftly after it, an entire nation disintegrate. Proof of that stands outside Maximir at a monument that say, states, to all the Dinamo fans for whom the war started on 13th of May 1990, and ended with them laying down their lives on the altar of Croa the Croatian homeland. By anyone's reckoning, this was all quite a big deal. But what happened on the 13th of May 1990 simply can't be taken in isolation. Two weeks prior, Dinamo had been involved in crowd trouble already. Facing Sarajevo away, the game had to be abandoned after a linesman was knocked out cold by an object thrown from the stands. In the week leading up to the game, Croatia had democratic elections that not only returned a non-communist party as winners, but provided a new leader in Franjo Tudjman, who was vilified by many as ultra-nationalist. If anything, it would have been a surprise if things didn't end up in trouble at the game. This is the story of how Yugoslavia got to that fateful day, what happened on it, and what the immediate ramifications were when Yugoslavia returned to Croatia. In our last episode, we looked at what was going on in Yugoslavia between Slobodan Milosevic's Gazimestan speech and this point, but we excluded Croatia from that reckoning, and for good reason. For one, it's probably easiest for a listener if we deal with everything Croatian all at once, and in addition, Croatia's moves towards the breakup of Yugoslavia are very different to other regions. Kosovo has always bubbled under due to the ethnic divisions between society and state. Slovenia has built up quite slowly through a liberalising culture and political cooperation. Croatia, instead, just sort of hurtles wildly into unrest at a breakneck speed. For Croatia, the Gazmestan speech was more or less the beginning of the reactivation of the Croatian Spring, dormant since 1970, 
to more or less pick up where it left off in terms of radicalism and in the terms of the level of anger amongst Croats. Now, that statement is a slight fitting of the facts into the narrative, but not as dramatic a one as you may imagine, as the foundation of the Croatian Democratic Union, better known as the HDZ, would occur only days before Milosevic has talked of his arms bat armed battles to come on Gosova Field. But the legwork for the HDZ would take place in the years before it, conducted by Franjo Tudjman. Over the previous 20 years, Tuchman had spent periods in and out of hiding or in jail. After taking part in the Croatian Spring, Tuchman had been sentenced to a prison spell, but Tito would intervene to ensure such a sentence was lenient, and to also ensure that Tuchman would not face a more serious charge of espionage, rather just being convicted of a charge of subversive activities. While others involved in the Croatian Spring publicly repented, and if you want more details on that, go back to episode 34, Tudjman paid his dues, even if those dues were less than many may have expected. With his debt to society paid, Tudjman kept on at his subversive activities and, in fact, evolved them. Where, during the Croatian spring, Tudjman was looking for an evolution of socialism within the Yugoslav framework, Come the late 1980s, Tuchman was looking for more after a nomadic few years travelling to meet diaspora around the world, even spending time in prison after a particularly inflammatory interview he gave in Sweden. In brief, there are a few important aspects of what Tuchman's idea of what should come next was. First and foremost was, of course, the Croatian national question, with, crucially, past ideological differences put to one side. This more or less copied the Slovenian concept of having multiple oppositions, but all with one goal of becoming an independent state. A fully decentralised Yugoslavia was his initial aim, but this was never really a realistic option given Slobodan Milosevic, and as we'll see over the coming episodes, Tuchman's tactics were as much to make sure that Croatia could get what it want while also making sure it couldn't be seen to be the aggressors, and to win battles in the media as well as the in the field. A tactic that would eventually leave Croatia's existence hanging by a thread before securing it forever. However, unlike with Slovenia's awakening, Croatia's burying the hatchet with the ideological differences of the past meant welcoming the remnants of the Ishtazi back inside the tent. Not only that, but many of Tuzman's meetings were held with Croatian emigres from Herzegovina, specifically those who had originated from the Croat-heavy areas of Mostar and Siroki Brieg. Most prominent amongst those was Gojko Sušak, whose father had been an Ishtazi officer killed in conflict by the partisans, with his elder brother meeting the same fate. This, among other connections, opened Tudjman to the allegation that he was far-right himself, and, if nothing else, meant Tudjman had to be involved in intrigues in Bosnia because of who he had surrounded himself with. Tudjman himself 
Similarly to Milosevic, was dismissive of any concept of Bosnian independence. Tuchman, being dragged into Bosnia because of his connections, would, in the years to come, have dire consequences for everyone. So, perhaps understandably, the HDZ on formation was a clunky outfit. It would be wrong to describe it as trying to be all things to all people, but it did have members of the entire political spectrum within it. Unlike Slovenia, where the opposition to Yugoslav rule came from one coalition with several distinct and independent parties within it, which, in doing so, produced a diverse range of parties, Croatia saw one party with essentially a coalition within it, whose existence throttled any other chance of an opposition party as, unless you had a really pressing reason to vote for someone other than the HDZ, there was an element of everyone's political ideology within there already. Where Slovenia's political scene was one grand pick and mix, Croatia's was a bag of sweets that all looked the same, but you never quite knew how each one would taste. There was also one other element of Tuchman's ideas to take into mind, that he was well aware who held the guns. The JNA were progressively becoming more and more Serbian, with extra exercises taking place to ensure that it was an efficient and modern outfit, but with Croats largely underrepresented. Serbia had 40% of the population of Yugoslavia, yet formed nearly 60% of the armed forces. Croatia had 22% of the population and only 12% of the armed forces. Even within the police in Croatia, there was an overrepresentation of Serbs. Tudjman knew, whatever he did, he had to take in mind that Croatia couldn't just take on the rest of the nation in a straight fight. Like all political leaders at the start of rocketing to relevance, Tudjman needed a considerable amount of luck and a considerable poisoning of the well of Croatian life. His first bit of luck was geographic. It was quite difficult to maintain Croatia as a one-party state when Slovenia, literally 20 miles away from Zagreb, was a hotbed of new political parties. Trickle-down disillusion from north to south with Yugoslavia had a big impact on the Croatian consciousness, particularly as it seemed that the anti-Yugoslav-Slovenian movement had the momentum of a runaway train and that few had all that much interest in actually stopping Slovenia from doing its own thing. The second piece of good fortune came in late 1989. Communist politician Ivica Rajan hadn't been part of the Croatian Spring, but it was something that launched his career. When the Croatian leadership of the Communist Party had been cleared out in reaction to the Croatian Spring, Rachan was one of those to take their place. Over the following one and a half decades, Rachan had become known as one of the more liberal voices in the party and, as 1989 came around, very much an anti-Milosevic voice. Come the end of that year and the election for a new leader of Croatia's communists, Rachan became the surprise winner, able to unite the pro-Yugoslav factions and the reformist factions within the party. At the full Yugoslav Congress of Communists in January 1990, which we mentioned in the previous episode, 
there were disagreements over the future of the party, as the two main voting blocs of North and South kept on voting each other down. At this point, Slovenia were the leaders of the reformers and walked out of the Congress first. Well, Milosevic let the Slovenes go. When Machan threatened to follow, Milosevic pulled out all the stops to attempt to woo him back to the table. However, Machan showed a united front, telling Milosevic that a communist party without the Slovenes was not sustainable. From here on, Croatia and Slovenia's futures were locked together as both a united front against Milosevic and also a competitive rivalry as to who could push the furthest the fastest. Rachan had laid Croatia's cards out on the table. The third bit of good fortune came out of this also ahead of the multi-party elections. Tuchman had two main competitors in Croat politics the Communists under Rachan and another new party, the KNS. The KNS can, at its most basic level, be thought of as like Demos in Slovenia, a broad coalition of smaller parties attempting to come together as one big movement, and, similarly to the HDZ, were led by a veteran of the Croatian Spring, Savka Dabcevic Kachar. Dabcevic Kachar expected to ride on her reputation from the Croatian Spring and start the campaign strongly, but fell apart due to three key issues. While Tudjman did time in jail for the Croatian Spring, Dabcevic Kuchar had apologised publicly. Tudjman seemed principled, Dabcevic Kuchar cowardly. While Dabcevic Kuchar didn't contact emigrates or speak to the far right, Tudjman had already taken a sledgehammer to that forbidden door and wooed nationalists to his cause. His base was always going to be wider. Finally, the runoff electoral system didn't favour a system with three major parties. With the communists polling second almost everywhere, there was room for only one opposition in any region, and, as a result, voters tended to drift from the communists and other parties to the HDZ and to the other opposition, the SDS. With those bits of luck in place, the other element needed was poison, and if nothing else, Tudjman was seen as that by his opponents for his rapprochement with nationalism. Because of the threat Tudjman was seen to possess, it only took two days from the confirmation that multi-party elections would happen and the first gasp of another nationalism, Serb nationalism, through the SDS. To explain this properly, we actually have to go back a few centuries to when Croatia was the border between the West and the Ottoman Empire. In 1538, Serbs were granted the right to settle on the military frontier between Austria and Ottoman land. At this point, those who moved in wouldn't really have considered themselves as wholly Serb. Some were Serbs, more were uh, from other tribes such as the Vlachs or the Morlocks, those who had been displaced by mainly the Ottomans and put to work in what were disputed lands. This region was known as the Vojna Kraina, or in short, the Kraina. Coolly ebbing away of Ottoman power, Serbia became a thing, but at the same time the Austrian Empire had issues and Croatian nationalism became a thing also. Come the end of the 19th century, the Austrian-Hungarian administration, led by Count Karoli Kuen Hedevari, played Croats against those living in the Kraina so as to 
sort of split both up. And in doing so, changed a kraina of multiple ethnicities into a kraina of one Serb. Now this was obviously a problem in World War II. And when Tuchman came around with his ideas pushing towards correct independence and with a couple of disreputable characters in tow, the Serbs in the Kraina remembered the issues they had in World War II with the Ishtazi and ran into the arms of Milosevic. The Kraina Serbs would set up their own political party, the SDS, and found an immediately suitable leader in Jovan Raskovic, whose family had perished under the Ishtazi, but who had gone on to a distinguished academic career and would swiftly become the de facto leader of Serbs in Croatia. Now, Raskovic himself is an absolutely fascinating character, one who tended to hold a higher opinion of his nominal opponent, Tudjman, than he did his nominal patron, Milosevic, and one who thought all problems in the world could be explained away with psychology. If you've ever read his um, attempts to break down the Yugoslavia into the Oedipus complex, they are genuinely the ideas of a challenging mind, shall we say. Um, he is a genuinely interesting chap, um, who unfortunately we won't touch on too much <laughs> in our timeline. So the field was set for elections on the 20th of April with four key parties. The HDZ of Tudjman, the Communist, now known as the SKH of Rachan, the KNS of Davchevich Kachar, and the SDS of Raskovic. The SKH were, quite unsurprisingly, expected to win. But the parties, aside from the SDS, weren't really that different. All wanted reform as a minimum, but only Tudjman would openly state that independence would be a logical next goal should reform not be possible. Only 15% of Croats supported independence in opinion polling, but the reality was that the political system didn't support such lukewarm feelings on independence. Only the SKH had any sort of cross-ethnicity appeal, and even then, that would mainly harm the SDS, whereas the HDZ was almost entirely Croat in vote. Tushman, it should be said, didn't help himself here. The HDZ were portrayed by the media as right-wing nationalists, and Tudjman played to it at times, even once describing the Ishtazi as, quote, an expression of the historical aspirations of the Croatian nation. He played up to it because it helped his call vote to play the Ishtazi in as a part of a romantic ideal of Croatian nationalism, as opposed to what they were, a ragtag disorganised collective of genocidal idiots. In short, for Tudjman at the time, the Ustazi had gone about things the wrong way, but at least their hearts were in the right place. In pursuing this line of argument, it came with a neat little side effect for Tudjman. It pushed people away from the SKH, his main opposition, towards the smaller SDS, as if you were disgusted by Tudjman's nationalism, then you were also disgusted by the party who allowed it to ferment in the first place. And there was no harm for Tudjman in sending protest votes to the SDS in regions like the Kraina that would never have voted for him anyway. This was all further assisted by the messaging of the SKH, basically consisting of pictures of Rachan looking thoughtful, 
with slogans indicating that he was thinking very hard about the nation's problems. It was unclear and hardly stirring stuff. Where the HGZ were clear and aspirational, the SKH were offering little more than listening. Tushman's tactics combined with the SKH floundering heightened tensions to the point where a Serb man who turned up at a HDZ rally in Benkovac would pull a gun and fire upon the stage during a speech from Tudjman. But also, Yugoslavia didn't help itself. Knowing the likelihood of Croatia falling under non-communist rule was high, Milosevic ordered arms to be taken from Croatia and moved into the Kraina, or just out of Croatia. The headline being a daring train heist that made headlines across Yugoslavia, but didn't ever actually elicit an investigation. For Milosevic, if Tuchman won, then fine. But Tuchman couldn't be allowed to win and have possession of guns. So the election took place in a febrile atmosphere. But in truth, what happened was a rout. In the first round of voting, electing around half the parliament, the HDZ won 42% of the vote, nearly double that of the SKH. A fortnight later, over the 6th and 7th of May, Tuchman's landslide was confirmed. In short, the HDZ dominated Croat areas, the SKH did well in mixed areas, and the SDS did well in the Kraina, with the KNS being more or less wiped out. While all of the three remaining main parties could claim a victory of sorts, Croatia had confirmed a system that was destined only to set Croats and Serbs against each other. At the time, even Machan was reasonably happy that he'd proven the SKH could move ably from a one-party state into a modern European political force in a multi-party democracy. However, the election in fact turned out to be a death blow for the SKH, as the dribs and drabs that filtered out of the party while they had a chance of winning soon turned into a flood once they were out of power. And into all that, under a week later from the second round, on the 13th of May, Dinamo Zagreb was set to face Svena Zvesta at Maximir, and the words of the past year would have their inevitable result. But before we get on to the actual football, there's one other thing we really have to get to, which is to talk about the groups on either side of this divide, specifically the Delie and the Bad Blue Boys. The Delie are the largest of Svena Zvesta's ultras group, and uh, probably best thought of as sort of like a rowdy version of the KNS, one name that incorporates a larger group of smaller parties, in the case of Delier, regional fan groups with the main bulk coming from, of course, Belgrade. The Sviesta had had fan groups in the past, but the official formation of the Delier, a word which doesn't really have an accurate English translation, in 1989 turned what were about eight or nine separate fan groups who already tended to occupy one part of the Maracanar into one larger group that essentially took up the entire north stand of the stadium. Thrust into becoming one of the leaders of the group was a career criminal by the name of Selko Vasnatovic. Vasnatovic's backstory is, to be quite honest, the stuff of a Hollywood film. He spent much of the prior two decades in Western Europe in the employ of the Yugoslav intelligence agencies while also part of a criminal gang committing armed bank robberies across Europe, with the entire gang linked to the Yugoslav intelligence agencies, and uh, Rasnatovic even developed his own little trademark of leaving a rose 
at the site of his bank robberies. He rose to prominence simply by being the last one of that gang not to be killed. In the late 1980s, Raznatovich was known by another name picked up from one of his fake identities, Arkan. And the Delier were about to serve as his launchpad from being one of the most feared criminals in Yugoslavia to being one of the most notorious men on the planet. At Maximir, he would even spend time sat on the Sviesta bench alongside manager Dragoslav Sekularac, perhaps the beginning of a relationship with Sheki that would play out on the pitch again later on in the 90s. Also present at this part of the Delier at the game was one Aleksandar Vucic, better known as the current president of Serbia. In the blue corner were Dinamo's bad blue boys, likely the only ultras group in any sport to take their name from a Sean Penn movie, and they had formed four years prior in similar fashion to the Delier, a combination of smaller groups coming under one banner. While perhaps their most famous coming out party will come later in 1990, when they go on tour to Bergamo, the BBB had already established themselves as one of the nation's foremost and most pyromaniacal ultras groups. Even prior to Tudjman taking charge of the political scene, the BBB had nationalist roots, but this was soon to ramp up with the political scene being what it was. Both the BBB and Hajduk Torcida were ardent supporters of Tudjman. Perhaps the first na major nationalist footballing issue, in fact, came from the Torcida in late 1989. After a fire in a mine in Aleksinac in Serbia killed 90 people, a minute's silence was held at the following round of games. During this, Hajduk fans whistled and protested the silence. The protest itself was generally directed at the government, given that the tragedy had occurred due to negligence rather than uh, any sort of accidental external factor. But the optics of the protest caused understandable distress in Serbia, and there was little way to take nationalism out of that. And so, to the actual football. Because before we get to the fateful day, it's worth noting that fateful day we mentioned at the start of this episode a little bit earlier as Sarajevo hosted Dinamo, with the game being abandoned. This, in of itself, proved quite the issue given the response from the FA. The initial response was to void the game and award a 3-0 win to Dinamo. That, in itself, would have actually relegated Sarajevo, and, as a result, Sarajevo appealed. And won. And after the end of the season, they replayed the game with Dinamo, and then won that. As a result, Sarajevo were propelled from 17th and relegated to 13th and safe, with Velez Mostar relegated in their stead. Unlike the fallout from Scheiber's round, where Dinamo Vinkovci were relegated after entering the final day completely safe because of the reversal of points penalties, Velez's relegation was actually overturned, and, for the following season, the First League would operate with 19 sides. Therefore, only Vardar would end up as relegated 8 points behind Velez. 
Schreiber's reforms will continue to have an impact on games with only 50 draws this season, down from 67, meaning only 50 penalty shootouts in the league, 11 of which involved Dinamo. Unlike the prior season, where Schreiber's penalties decide for the title, they didn't really decide much of anything as teams were able to amass their points totals from changing their tactics and winning games, and in doing so, it more or less negated the impact outside of a massive sides in mid-table of Scheiber's penalties on positions in the table. Nowhere was that more true than at the top, because while Sarajevo and Dinamo was being called early because of crowd trouble, Sviesta were actually winning the title. If anything, that's perhaps the oddest aspect of the Maximir riot. Generally, one would expect that competition would inflame passions. Aside from rivalry, the game itself didn't actually matter one bit. Siesta had more or less lapped the field, winning the title by a scarcely believable 11 points and scoring 26 goals, more than anyone else, with Panchev delivering 25 of those. That, in itself, was the highest individual goal-scoring season seen in the league, since Sobolgan Sandrach set the league record of 33 back in 1971-72. In short, the league itself wasn't a contest. Sviesta didn't lose a game in the spring part of the season, with three of their five losses for the season coming in the first of their s first six games. Dinamo, who came second just ahead of Heidegg and Partizan, would actually be the only side to take a point away from the American R all season, a penalty win in November. But otherwise, Sviesta simply defeated everyone, and comfortably. But when it came to travelling to Zagreb in the penultimate round of the season, it was obvious that the game was going to be a flashpoint. For one, there had been issues in previous games between the two. More in the vein of groups of supporters arranging to meet outside the ground and have a bit of a fight going in. While such disturbances were hardly a good thing, they were generally small-scale and limited to footballing rivalries. In fact, there was even a film made about one of the previous meetings and punch-ups, called ZG80, released a couple of years ago. On the 13th of May, 1990, Sven and Siesta fans travelled up to Zagreb by train, and issues started quickly. For a start, the fans were very well prepared for the police presence that would welcome them. Rather than everyone getting off at Zagreb's main station, when the train stopped to wait near the station, around 500 fans hopped off and started trouble in the suburb of Tvinje. The police had to react to escort what was a sizable fan march from Tvinje to Maximir, meaning that there were fewer around to deal with the main cohort of Siesta fans, an extra around 2,500, who actually got off at the main station like they were meant to. In between, the 500 fans who'd gotten off in Trigné smashed up cars and sang their songs until the police were able to surround them. Even then, that took some doing, and a fight between fans and police ensued. The fans were eventually escorted to Maximir, where the police tried, unsuccessfully, to keep them there while they waited for the rest of the Sviesta fans to get there. That rest of the Sviesta fans now faced with a smaller police presence in the centre of Zagreb, immediately started hunting for Dinamo fans, with a pair seriously injured having had the misfortune to run into this swarming mass of Delier. Eventually, all the Sviesta fans were where they were meant to be, near Maximir, 
and were escorted into the low area of the south stand. The rest of this you can actually watch in its entirety on YouTube, because quite aside from anything else that was about to go on, the whole event was televised so everyone was able to watch a nation disintegrate from the comfort of their living rooms and you too can go and watch a, <laughs> watch a nation disintegrate on your phone should you so wish. In spite of everything having been recorded and televised and debated to death, plenty about what went on is still very hotly debated. For one, who actually started it? While the Sviesta fans would tend to blame the BBB for breaking fences in the stadium and approaching them, and it's worth noting many believe that the fences had been weakened prior to the game on purpose so as to allow that, Dinamo fans would tend to blame the Serb-dominated police force, who were reportedly given orders specifically to leave the Sviesta fans alone and only go piling into the Dinamo ones. Some, in both camps, believe it was a setup by the intelligence services so as to provide a timely, televised warning on the dangers of rampant nationalism. If that was the case, whoever thought that was a good idea definitely needed to be fired. It is all, to say the least, contentious, and the truth is that bits of all stories are true. Both fan groups did come ready for a fight, and when it came to the police, the ethnic makeup was, as it was with most of the national institutions, built on an overrepresentation of Serbs and an underrepresentation of Croats. That is simply how Yugoslav organs worked. The first thing about the riot was the positioning of the fans. The Delia and the BBB were at different ends of the stadium but there were Dinamo fans next to the Delia. Specifically, while the Delia were in the lower deck of the south stand, a number of Dinamo fans were directly above them in the upper deck. The police presence was, understandably, primarily focused on the front of the stand, so as to stop any fans attempting to get onto the pitch. As a result, what police didn't do was protect the back of the Delia area. Specifically, that the Zviesta fans there were wrecking it to the point they were able to open access to a stairwell that led directly to the Dinamo area above. The few police stationed there soon fled, leaving Dinamo fans open to attack in perhaps what is the most outright violent part of the riot, as Talia and Dinamo fans clashed, and the Dinamo fans were forced into a fight or flight situation, being attacked by Talia swarming from below. Video of the riot shows just how vicious this phase was, with chairs flung across the terraces and any Dinamo fans unlucky enough to get caught, getting descended upon by groups of Sviesta Ultras and given a beating. This drew a reaction from the BBB, who broke out of their area and ran to attack the original Delia area in response, tearing down banners. At this point, the police did react. As the BBB were accessing the Delia area, not via the stands, but mainly hopping the fence and running down the running track at the side of the pitch. As such, the riot had evolved into two separate areas of attack, BBB versus the police and the Delia versus the Dinamo fans above. Eventually, the police would be forced back and Delia would sprint back down into their area to try to defend it against the BBB. And, when it was clear they couldn't, 
they went back up top to continue the original battle. Soon, tear gas was brought out as the police tried to get a grip. Instead, the BBB surged forward in a different area at the very centre of the North Stand, breaking a fence and starting to empty their stand to get away from the tear gas and then, when police tried to force them back, to attack the police. It took until this point for the teams, who it should be said were stood on the pitch the entire time this was all going on, to actually be led off. At the same time, the police chose to charge into BBB fans who would spread across the pitch. The Dynamo players turned from being led off and some chose to help injured fans. One of those players was Svonimir Boban. Boban came upon a policeman raining blows on a downed fan and went for him. Boban was pulled away but then ran around those trying to stop him and delivered a flying knee into the face of the policeman. It was the most incredible image of the day and perhaps the most famous image in the history of football in the region. Dinamo fans quickly swarmed around Boban and escorted him from the pitch so as to ensure the police couldn't get to him while the entire stand chanted for him. In one blow, Boban had gone from the genius who brought Yugoslavia to the, the World Youth Championship in 1987 and a man who was set to become the fulcrum of the side at Italian 90 into a symbol of dissidence and Croatian freedom. Some would even accuse him of being a patsy, set up by the HDZ to justify a purge of the police. None more prominent a figure than Shecky himself. Quote, I think that all that had been orchestrated and fixed from higher positions, especially Boban's attack on the police officer. They wanted to kill us, all because they regarded all of us as Serbs. Therefore, we were the enemies. While this happened, the police had stopped their attack and begun to bring out fire engines and turn them on as water cannons onto Dinamo fans. They too were set upon with projectiles and soon driven back out of the stadium, as the riots settled into a routine of tear gas and police charges, slowly chipping away at the Dinamo fans who drifted off outside of the stadium gradually. The trouble carried on outside the stadium. As Dinamo fans filtered out, they were followed by police all the way into the centre of Zagreb, with occasional running battles all the way along. The Zviesta fans, meanwhile, were penned in the upper area of their stand where this trouble had all started, into the evening, then bussed out of the stadium to an emergency train and sent packing straight back to Belgrade. With the riot over, the recriminations began. Boban was the obvious target. Here was the person who, to many, had launched the first proper violent resistance against the Serbia that was masquerading as Yugoslavia. He would be banned from football for six months, taking him out of Italian 90 and had criminal charges levied against him. That, in turn, would have ramifications a few weeks later when Yugoslavia hosted its final pre-World Cup friendly at Maximir the last time a Yugoslavia game would be held in Zagreb, 
After the crowd turned their backs on and booed the national anthem, jeered the team and cheered for their opponents, the Dutch. The Yugoslav authorities had intended this as an attempt to regain the affection of Zagreb by allowing them to be bearers of the patriotic send-off to their boys to Italy. Instead, it was an embarrassment, compounded by the selection of only three Croatian players in the side. Ivkovic in goals, Zoran Vulic and Zlatko Vujovic, the latter two, of course, are Hajduk legends, while the only two Dinamo players in the squad, Davos Šuker and Andrei Panadic, sat on the bench getting splinters. For his part in the whole event, Boban was happy to play to it in the many interviews he gave afterwards. Quote, Here was I, a public face prepared to risk his life, career and everything that fame could have brought, all because of one ideal, one cause, the Croatian cause. He continued, That derby reflected everything that had been going on in our society and everyday life. Yugoslav football reflected Yugoslavia. I could see the police were only treating our fans badly, and I got increasingly frustrated as I was thinking about all the great injustices that had been done to people over the years, to the fans, and also to us. But the big question is the one that's implied by the title of this episode. For many, this is symbolically the date upon which the war started. The match that started a war, ultimately, is a snappier catchphrase than the biggest riot European football's ever seen, but as a statement, does it really hold water? The truth is that you could get a pretty solid PhD thesis purely out of examining that concept on its own, and it probably still wouldn't come out with a conclusive answer. Academic Dario Brenton has even produced teaching resources for undergraduate levels solely on understanding how this one event weaves into the narrative of the breakup of Yugoslavia. The Maximia riot, or the Maximia myth, is a massively important event in terms of what it represents for two reasons. The first is that throughout all the growth of discontent we've seen in Yugoslavia so far, Maximia represents the first time two sides properly go at it. Milosevic's anti-bureaucratic revolution didn't feature two sides, it featured one side. Yes, there was violence in Kosovo, but the reasons behind what went on in Kosovo were markedly different to the issues going on in the rest of Yugoslavia and impacting people's everyday lives. This was the first time there was a simple conflict between two groups representing two sides of Yugoslavia's existentialist debate. The second is the follow-up of that. This was the first time that the two major drivers of nationalism met in the middle. The politicisation of the state from above met the politicisation of sport and, by extension, the politicisation of the average man on the street. This was a fight as much France versus police as Delia versus BBB or Serbia versus Croatia. This was happening throughout Yugoslavia. Songs in the terraces were becoming more nationalist. The envelope was being pushed just that bit more. While Serbs accru accused Croats of adopting Ashtazi symbolism, the Serbs were equally 
adopting far-right Chetnik symbolism from World War II. And Croatia was naturally the battlefield for all this. While Slovenia was moving faster towards detaching itself from the Yugoslav yoke, Slovenes generally kept to Slovenia, and a cursory look at an ethnic map of Yugoslavia would tell you that. Slovenia was overwhelmingly Slovene, and by far the least ethnically diverse of the republics. Croatia, on the other hand, was definitely could never be accused of lacking ethnic diversity, due to large Serb populations on, in the Krajina, on the border into Bosnia, and in the eastern region of Slavonia, that borders Vojvodina. When Delie in Maximir chanted Serbia to Zagreb, it was because you probably could make a reasonable ethnic case that Serbia's tendrils could extend that far. And after 20 years of Croatian silence, the poison in the national discourse naturally impacted Croats. While the Delie chanted that, the BBB came back with verses such as when you're happy, slaughter Serbs with a knife. With words like that, is it really any wonder that people came to blows? Maximir is also an event with contradictions. While so many saw the police as Serb-dominated because they were, the police officer Boban actually clobbered was called Refik Akhmetovic. Not a Serb, a Bosnian Muslim. It would hardly be the last time over the next few years that Bosnian Muslims would be caught in the middle of a fight between Croats and Serbs. It's also an event remembered in different terms in different places. Much of the mythology around it is from a history is written by the winner's narrative. If this is a day a war started, a war that would eventually result in Croatian independence, then it's little wonder that the main mythology about the Maximir riot is actually written by Croats, while in Serbia it isn't really dealt with at all because this period of history is quite simply complex and difficult for Serbia to deal with because they rarely come out of it looking all that good. The other problematic reality about the event is that the event ultimate is ultimately looked at often as merely an event to be viewed in a singularity that has a nice headline as the match that started a war and ultimately discussion of it doesn't take anything into account other than there was a fight there was a war from an academic perspective this was just one event in a long line of them that was leading to an inevitable end to quote Sirdan Virchan in Nogomet Politica Nasrie, he argued, in fact, the attitudes, sorry, in fact, in the attitudes, behavior, and actions, as well as the contents of mass chants and symbols used in Zagreb, Split, and Belgrade, one could already see the unambiguous signals of a breakdown of the ruling socialist system and the appearance of political strategies that would lead to the un unavoidable conflicts and consequently to a war. The Maximir riot was just one event in many. Arguably, it was perhaps unique only in that it was fans versus fans versus, rather than fans versus state. Between Maximir and the Netherlands game, Hajduk had their say too in a post-season tour to Australia. Welcomed by Croatian emigres waving nationalist symbols, players chose to simply play in plain white shirts 
rather than play with the club crest on, as the crest had the star on to represent Yugoslavia. Over the next season, it would not be the last footballing event Hajduk would be involved in. Did this match start a war? Is probably the big question. And perhaps the one real opinion in question <laughs> you get to in this episode. As I see it, no. But in a weird way, it symbolically was the first battle of it. Many of the fans attending the game on either side would end up fighting in the war. Five months after the game, Arkan would set up his Tigers, the Serb Volunteer Guard, and many of his Delier would join. Many of the BBB would fight as well. The fights on the terraces that day at Maximir would soon play out across the entire nation. Next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, we go with Yugoslavia to Italy for their last international tournament, Italian 90. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I appreciate that uh, that has been a somewhat longer episode than usual. Um, clocking in, well, what's going to eventually be over 50 minutes, which is about double uh, the size of almost any other episode we've done. Um, so thank you very much um, for taking the time to uh, make the commitment to listen to this. Um, I do hope it's uh, been a very thought-provoking uh, episode. Uh, it certainly has been uh, for me. Uh, that's probably the episode I've done the most reading up on um, to provide as wide a, a, a spectrum of views on it as I could. Um, obviously, we've released three episodes in a week. We don't normally do that. Um, so there will be a little break until we get to Italian 90. I will be doing some um, ad hoc podcasts in between um, because uh, we are obviously in the run-up to Euro 2020 in 2021 uh, and also in the uh, final run-in of the domestic seasons across the nation. Um, as always, sharing is caring. If you do think you know someone who would like to listen to this, please do let them know. Um, as mentioned at the end of the last episode, if you do want to listen to the Sweeper podcast, uh, which I was on talking about uh, the potential Balkan Super League, um, please do. Um, it's a great little interview uh, on there, and uh, you know it's part of a much uh, longer and, and fantastic episode uh, debuting for that particular podcast. Um, as always, please do leave reviews on iTunes and stuff, and I will catch you uh, for... What I assure you will be a, a much more normal length of episode next time.